With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio on Friday, March 2nd, 2012. Episode 238 is being broadcast from our studio in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, where it's a beautiful spring day. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man. Today, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is in Indian Lake and will be participating remotely. At the controls is our engineer. Foxy, Roxy V, Val Bender. Good morning. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question, an interview with our guest Peter Krosa, halftime announcements on an upcoming event by Pete Consigli, and roundup with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. I write and post a blog after each show. Check it out at our website www.iqradio.com. Now it's time to thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. To listen to the show live, follow the link on your show invitation or the Go to Show button on our website. You can stream or download archived shows at our website. The show can also be downloaded from the website or from iTunes. Don't forget, you can earn ABIHCM points, IICRC, Continuing Education Credits, or ACAC Renewal Credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Last and not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the schedule of the training courses you trust at iaqtraining.com.
Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. I'm sorry. There were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. The trivia question for Friday, March 2nd, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Val, the envelope, please. Name the group of property insurance coverages designed to ensure exposures that cannot be conveniently or reasonably confined to a fixed location or insured at a standard rate under a standard form. This also includes coverage for property in transit over land, certain movable property, property under construction, instrumentalities of transportation and communication, such as bridges, roads, piers, and television and radio towers, legal liability coverage for bay lees, and computerized equipment. Many of these coverage forms provide coverage without regard to the location of the property. Let's talk a little bit about our guest today. Peter Crosa has been a licensed independent adjuster and private investigator for over 30 years, handling large complex losses throughout the United States and Latin America. Since 2000, he has traveled the country conducting workshops and keynote speeches on the topic of marketing vendor services to adjusters and insurance companies. Mr. Crosa is also the author of four books, including the 2012 Restoration Contractor's Guide to Insurance Repair, Soft-Selling Hardened Claims Adjusters, Claims Marketing Tips, and An Adjuster is What an Adjuster Does. Peter is also a frequent contributor to Clean Facts Magazine and other industry publications. Peter, thank you for joining us. Bring them on, and we've got some intro music for you. Okay, Joe, let's go to you for the first question. All right. Well, first, Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Peter, let's, let's start with a little background. Um, maybe you could give us just a quick overview of what the difference between a company adjuster, an independent adjuster, and a public adjuster is. Okay. Uh, a company, or a staff adjuster as we call them, is an adjuster who is employed by the insurance company. His paycheck actually says Travelers or Hartford or State Farm. That's what a company adjuster is. The independent adjuster is licensed only to represent the insurance company and a self-insured corporation like Coca-Cola, who, for example, who might have a $5 million uh, deductible and they are responsible for all the claims up until that amount. They might hire an independent adjuster. So an independent adjuster is paid by the hour as a rule. Uh, typically on cat, cat, uh, catastrophe claims, they may handle those on a flat rate basis because of the volume. And uh, if they work 70 hours a week, they're going to get paid 70 hours a week. Staff adjuster works 70 hours a week. He's going to get paid for his 40-hour salary. And then the third adjuster is a public adjuster, which is uh, licensed to represent the policyholder only. 
and he derives his income from a percentage of the claim. So his his appeal to the property owner is, I can get more money than they would normally have offered you, and you will be able to pay me my percentage with a portion of that excess money. Those are the three main categories of adjusters. Okay, thank you. Go ahead. I just have a follow-up on that. I'm... You know, I do a lot with water damage guys and mold remediation guys, and um, they they would love to have better relationships with these types of folks. But um, let me get a feel for it from you, if you would, of like a staff adjuster or a company adjuster. Do they have a certain territory they typically will cover, or could they go all over the country? Well, every company is going to handle that differently, but... Uh... Let's say the type of adjuster that goes all over the country is usually going to handle a very high-value loss. So if you've got a guy based out of of, uh, St. Louis, for example, if he's a national GA, he may not touch any loss that is less than half a million or a million dollars. Okay. What about the independent guys? Do they go all over the country as well, or or are they kind of Uh, a mixed bag as well? Yeah, very few of them do. Uh, they tend to be uh, territory-specific, uh, and um, there are, again, you know, some executive GAs or general adjusters who will travel the country, but they have a sort of a select client base and, um, and have built up a reputation. It's a very high-level loss. As a rule, adjusters are territory-specific, and because, obviously, it's cost-efficient to have uh, people handle claims in the territory or zone where they're where they're based out of. Gotcha. And the public adjuster is similar. Yeah, uh, uh, very little distinction there. Gotcha. Okay. And then later, I know we'd like to kind of get your feeling for which of those different groups, people who are trying to get more work from these these uh, adjusters, which one they should target and how. But I'll let it, let Cliff take it from there okay um actually roxy lets you get by you introduced a couple of terms and i just want to uh correct those uh, there you go she, she, that's actually the acronym police and and they pull you over they were sleeping right that's okay <laughs> they were actually having a donut but uh in any event you used a couple of terms and what we want to do is just clear those up uh if you can peter for the the audience use the term ga you also use the term executive general adjuster uh, are they one in the same or can you just define what those terms are well, they, they can be. Let's, let's just say they are loosely used terms to apply to adjusters who handle large losses. Uh, there may be companies who don't have an executive GA, but those that do, here's the distinction, and here's how they'll use those terms. A general adjuster, for example, at a given company might handle claims up to a million dollars. An executive GA typically is a guy who's roaming a multi-state territory, usually national territory, and he's going to handle the really big ones, million dollars and over. Executive GA usually implies that. Okay, cool. Why do, and and this might be a touchy subject, and I'm sorry, but, but I really need to a- ask the question. Why do consumers consistently rank insurance adjusters as less trustworthy than used car salesmen? <laughs> okay, well, it, it would be touchy if adjusters had uh, thin skin but uh, uh, and if they were sensitive people. But generally speaking, uh, they're pretty hardened and toughened to, to, to name-calling. Um, if you think about it, a used car salesman, the public's view of that person is that, that typically they, they got something that was misrepresented or that didn't deliver. They bought a car with problems in it. The used car salesman typically will enhance all the benefits of a vehicle and maybe hide some of the uh, negatives or, uh, you know, the, the poor conditions of certain aspects of that vehicle. And then the, the used car salesman wants to get as much money out of the public as possible, whether it's justified or not. They don't care. They made the sale and goodbye. And, uh, I, and I think that's where that reputation uh, arose. And what happens with the adjuster is, is that the company buy, uh, excuse me, the consuming public buys an insurance policy. And when they have a claim, they feel like the terms of the, the policy were misrepresented to them. And, and you can point to advertising such as, you know, 
that you're in good hands or we're like a good neighbor type thing and you buy a policy and you don't read the terms of the policy and you trust what your agent tells you and you assume that it's going to take care of you if something goes wrong. And then what happens is the adjuster comes on the scene and he's the one that is, that is the bearer of bad news. He's the one that's got to tell you, well, there's a deductible. Well, there's depreciation. Well, there's coinsurance or there's no liability. And uh, all of this bad news is brought to them by the adjuster. And then the public feels, well, what was sold to me was misrepresented. I mean, we hear that a lot from the public. And so therein lies the uh, comparison. Okay. Peter, you mentioned the term coinsurance. Could you define that for us so we have a better idea what you mean by that? Yeah, I'll try to make this as simple as possible. Uh, let's say that you have a building and the value of that building is $100,000. The insurance policy that has a coinsurance clause in it says to you as the property owner, if you want to buy a policy, you have to warrant that you will buy enough coverage that is at least equal to 80% of the replacement value of that building. So on a $100,000 building, you actually are going to at least have 80000 in coverage. But what happens if you buy only 50000 in coverage? Okay, now you're underinsured, and according to the coinsurance clause in the policy, you are coinsured, which means there's going to be a penalty. Okay, so how the coinsurance formula works very simply is you take the formula is like this. The amount carried, which in this case is $50,000 on that building, divided by the amount required, which would have been 80000 so 50 over 80 is basically 5 eighths. That's the most that you're going to be able to collect on this claim because you were penalized by the coinsurance clause. Does that make sense? It does. It just I'm glad I asked because the, the name coinsurance doesn't, you know, I thought it meant that there was some other insurer. I guess it No, just, it uh, means that, that, uh, that you are coinsured. You're paying part of the loss out of your pocket, in effect. Yeah, you are the other insurer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you are. Okay, Cliff? Okay. Um, Peter, ethically speaking, is it the responsibility of an insurance company to broadly interpret the policy and to pay claims or narrowly interpret the policy in order to avoid paying the claim? Well, here, start with this premise. This is the funny thing. When underwriters create a policy... They write a policy that they think is plain and simple and ironclad, black and white terms, right? So to them, there's no other way to interpret that. There is no broad or narrow interpretation of the policy. It is written with their intent as clearly as possible. And what happens is, is that you get coverage situations or or peculiar loss situations where a property owner and or their representative will challenge what is meant by the terms of the policy. So now now you're getting interpretations. You're getting narrow or broad interpretations of the policy. And so from the insurance company's standpoint, they think they sold you something that was very clear, and where that, that challenge comes in is, is where the problem is. And, and, of course, when someone comes in and tries to broadly interpret a policy, the insurance company's defense is, no, that's not what we meant, and it appears to be a narrow interpretation in their defense, and and that's where you have this broad and narrow interpretation. I've got a question for you. In your in the course of your experience, which is pretty lengthy uh, within the industry, have you ever had occasion where um, you disagreed with? what the insurance company's interpretation was of the policy or, you know, they denied something that you thought should be covered? Well, here's the thing. As an independent adjuster, you have a client that's the insurance company. It's their policy. If they want to interpret it a certain way, that's their business. Where, And I'm not going to argue with a client that he's misreading his own product. Okay. No independent will do that who, who has any sense okay. because this is a, a business relationship. All right. The problem can come into play where you disagree on the extent of damages. 
And more often than not, I tend to be somewhat of a peacemaker and a little bit more on a liberal side uh, in terms of adjusting. And there are adjusters out there who they don't want to pay for anything. And I'm, I'm sort of at the opposite end of the realm. I'm still an effective adjuster, and I absolutely represent my client with full integrity and, and treat the policyholder decently. But, but there are different types of adjusters who approach it differently. And so that's where the conflict can come in. Um, my recommendations on damages might be perceived by my client to be too lenient or too strict. If it's too strict, I don't mind, because if they want to pay more money on a claim than I recommended, that's okay. It's their money. If, it's, if they feel like I'm too lenient, that's a, a little bit of a negative rub, because now they're telling me that uh, they're bringing my competency into question, for example, or, or maybe that's too strong of a position, but it rubs me the wrong way, because now I'm thinking, well, this is my client, and they think I'm too lenient. Uh, but, but it happens, and, you know, you're a smart businessman. You have to handle your, your clients with kid gloves and respect their intentions and their wishes. Okay. In terms of employment, is insurance adjusting a growing industry? Would you think it's a shrinking industry, or would you say it's holding pretty stable? Well, it's, uh, there is a slight uh, uptick, uh, not great but a slight uptick, and actually it should be much greater than that. And here's what's happening is that the definition of adjusting and the work performed by adjusters is changing. And whereas years ago an adjuster, an independent, could receive an assignment and handle it from beginning to end, nowadays adjusters are just handling portions of an assignment or just limits of an assignment, uh, and, and that has impacted the the adjusting industry. And so where many independents have gone is, is rather than focus on daily claims, which means just hang out your shingle and live in a community and handle the claims that handle that in that community that, that occur in that community normally, adjusters are, are closing down that aspect or narrowing that aspect and focusing on catastrophic events. And so adjusters are teaming up and if they know that there's a hurricane about to hit the eastern seaboard, they try to pal up with companies that have, you know, 10,000 policies written in that particular region and say, hey, we can get 400 boots on the ground to handle your claims. And that's where the focus and the future is of adjusting uh, is in catastrophic. And those companies uh, used to be that Pilot was one of the biggest ones 30 years ago. Well, they've got a lot of competition in terms of catastrophic adjusting business, and those companies have really uh, uh, bloomed in terms of increased revenues and expanded business, whereas the daily business for adjusters is dwindling. Now, what happens as far as people coming into the industry, the old, the old guys are retiring, you know, the uh, baby boomers and uh, the heavyweight GAs and executive GAs, and there's not necessarily people uh, in line to replace them, and that, that's, a, that's referred to as the brain drain, and there's a lot of writing in the trade papers about it. There has been for the last 20 years, whether something is really being done about it or if they're just deciding to change the way they adjust claims is, is another matter. But I would say there's a slight uptick in people coming into the industry, but mainly they're working at a desk, behind closed doors, by telephone, and that's the that's pretty much the future, or the majority of adjusting. Joe, do you want to handle that text question, or do you want me to do it? I don't have. I'm not on the computer. Okay. All right. We just had a text question come in, and it's on the same point we're talking about, Pete. Uh, if someone wanted a new career as an adjuster, how would they go about getting the training, and what type of income could they expect to be able to earn? All right. Well, let's talk about coming into the industry. <clears throat> You know, when, when Katrina and all those other hurricanes hit Florida, I mean, people who the week before were produce clerks at the supermarket went out and got licenses and became adjusters because there was such a demand for boots on the ground. Anybody that could breathe and write, write their name on a sheet of paper was sent up on a roof to handle 
claims, okay? And when all of that died down, there hadn't been the, the kind of storm activity that we had then. Uh, I'm getting five calls a week from guys who, want, who are looking for adjusting positions, and I'm just one, one firm. Everybody's getting calls, and these guys are out there with basically uh, uh, you know, six months or a year worth of CAT experience. They really don't have any in-depth claims or insurance company experience, and so there is a, a glut of unemployed adjusters out there right now. But if you are coming into the industry, the best thing to do is try to get with an insurance company. You're going to get legitimate training uh, up front, and you're going to get some ex experience reading policies and dealing with the public. And then after three to five years of that, if you wanted to become an independent, uh, I, I would go with a viable firm. I would not go with a cat uh, firm because they're just, uh, you know, you know, it's uh, they they use you when they need you, and then you'll you so you'll work for six months, you'll be unemployed for six months. As far as income goes, um, you know, Claims Magazine does uh, annual surveys on income, and the incomes have not surprisingly not increased over the last 10 years, but I would say an adjuster with three to five years experience can make somewhere in the vicinity of 50, 50 grand, let's say, and the odd thing is that the adjuster with 20 years experience is going to be in the vicinity of 60 grand. It's not going to be that much of a difference, and the people who are making more money, of course, are the independents. Who, where their income is dependent on the amount of business they handle. And, of course, if you're doing cat duty, you could work for six months and you might make $100,000, and then you go two years uh, not being employed is entirely uh, possible. Um, so anything, uh, I mean, I, I know a guy uh, on the coast of Alabama after Katrina who actually personally billed $750,000. Uh, and that's a that's a pretty decent income, but it's not common. So I would say the average is going to be fifty to a hundred grand. You could take a hundred adjusters, and you probably come up with an average in, in those numbers. Okay. Well, let's shift the way now, if, if you don't mind, and talk a little bit about how people who wish to work for insurance companies would go about, you know, obtaining the work. Uh, claims work can be obtained from both adjusters who are locally based and remotely based, you know, out of the restorers region, are you recommended marketing strategies and tactics um, for, for dealing with both the same or are they different? You know, please outline it. Okay. That, that uh, you started out talking about the career in adjusting, but you're leaving that behind, correct? correct. We're going to leave that behind and move that, move on. Right. How you market. Okay. Yeah. You do market differently. Um, there, one thing to be aware of is that an independent adjuster can be a great ally because he is also marketing his services to the same market that you are. So anytime you can ally yourself with an independent, it's, it's beneficial because uh, they're helpful. They're, they're usually a business-oriented uh, frame of mind, and they understand what it means um, for you as a contractor to be looking for work. Um, the actual best relationship and the best client you could have is a company adjuster who writes checks uh, and has check writing authority and has uh, a certain amount of autonomy to operate in the field. So uh, I would I would focus on the company adjuster, but I would also keep in mind that the independent adjuster is my friend and can be a great ally to open doors and make introductions for me. No, Peter, is that true? I'm sorry. I just wonder, is that true whether you're focused on residential or commercial or, or both? Well, okay. Uh, interesting point. All right, let's say that you, you are uh, strictly in some kind of a preferred vendor program and you're doing state farm work or all state work. You're, you're probably never going to be called to a 10-story hotel flood. Okay, because those companies are primarily residential with some small business, but primarily residential. So if you want to go after the commercial business and, and, and you know, get uh, a half a million dollar claim because a 10-story hotel flooded out, you're going to have to go towards um, <clears throat> the uh, independent adjuster or company GAs or executive GAs 
and uh, the independent agent is going to be a big help to you in that because that business is written mostly by independent agents. If you've got a 10-story hotel and it's got Travelers or AIG or Chartist or any of those companies, it's going to have been placed by an independent agent. And so uh, building relationships with independent agents will get you in the door with those companies as well as finding out who the adjusters are and it's a 50-50 flip if it's going to be an independent or a staff adjuster. Great. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm a little less experienced in this than, than Cliff is. So, uh, and if you wanted to keep – no, I, and I, I'm glad he asked the question the way he did because you brought up the, the company adjuster, the staff adjuster, and uh, residential, and it sounds like you know certain companies handle more residential than others. And it seems like – and this is what I hear in classes – you are saying that you would probably be able to get more work from the staff or company adjusters, and if it's residential, you know, you, you would be on a preferred vendor program or whatever, you'd get a lot more work. But aren't they also, at least from what I'm hearing, more difficult to get in the get your foot in the door with, or is that a myth? Uh, well, they may be more difficult, but the, the big factor there is that profitability is way down. Uh, they really hold the purse strings. If you if you want to get into a, one of those preferred vendor programs, you may get more work, but it's going to be uh, lower profit uh, margins, and your prices are going to be restrictive. And there are a lot of other commitments that you have to abide by, such as audits of your financial records and so on. That you know, frankly, to me, is just un-American, and it's not the way I like to do business. And so uh, when I, in my programs, I encourage people to get away from the preferred vendor programs and go find the adjusters and the companies that, that don't lock you into that uh, because you are not, uh, your hand is not held to the fire in terms of what you're charging. I mean, somebody is going to review uh, and compare what you're charging, but for the most part, um, it's, it's more of a real-world business opportunity. Gotcha. And Cliff, I'm sorry if I took it away from where you wanted to go. you want to bring it back in now or after halftime? Well, now I've got one question that I want to bring back in now, and, and then I think we'll go to halftime. Peter, uh, isn't it true that if I'm, wor- I'm from Pittsburgh and I might be working for an insurance company who would be based in, let's say, Texas, and I might be dealing with a desk adjuster who's sitting at a desk in Texas, how would I market my services from Pittsburgh to someone in Texas? You know, would I visit them? Would I call them up on the telephone? You know, would I send them an example of a an estimate that I had, you know, prepared or send them letters of recommendation I had from clients? How would I do that? Okay, well, this is a very significant question because most of the business in any given territory is handled by someone outside of that territory, okay? So you're in Pittsburgh, and let's say that you find out that there are companies writing business with, uh, with that come out of, let's say, Dallas, Texas, uh, or what was the, the city that you used? No, any place in Texas, but I'm oh, yeah, from okay. Pittsburgh, yeah. Pennsylvania. Dallas, Texas, or Scottsdale, Arizona, right. Atlanta, Georgia. If you're anywhere in the southeast, for example, you better be going to Atlanta at least once a year or marketing people who base out of Atlanta. So, yes, there, there is a way to do that. First of all, you got to call and, and try and make some headway that way. And, um, uh, you know, there are methodologies that I use in my book, and there's also a, probably the most comprehensive list of adjusting associations anywhere in my book. And you've got to find out where those adjusting associations are. So, for example, you're in Pittsburgh, you want to go to Dallas, or you want to look up the Dallas Claims Association and see who the adjusters are at those companies and start that way to market those people and try and set up appointments. And if you think it's worth your while, and this is where you know, you're in the real game of uh, trying to build your business, it's going to be worth an investment to travel to Dallas I wouldn't cold call travel to Dallas. You want to have, at least have some appointments set up and start knocking on some doors and meeting people that control business at Pittsburgh. That is absolutely true, and that is that is probably the predominant amount of business in any given territory comes from out of town. Trust me on that. All right. Let's let's go to halftime, Peter, if you can hang on. Uh, we're going to make a couple of announcements, and we'll be right back. Very good. 
Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, Pete. Uh, Commissioner Pete Consigli. That, thanks, Cliff. Uh, you guys are doing a great job, Peter. The interview is going terrific. I look forward to maybe joining and commenting during the roundup with Peter. Um, I just uh, want to give the, the uh, listeners uh, an opportunity to put in a couple of details as far as the up- upcoming REA convention, which will be uh, March 27th to the 29th in Myrtle Beach, California. Um, those of you that are REA members and uh, kind of know, the um, over the last year we've retired uh, Martin King, uh, through a series of uh, things the association has done for his unbelievable contribution with the CR program and being the technical director for over 40 years. There's a golf tournament, um, which is uh, going to be uh, used uh, along with a special banquet around a certification ceremony to um, uh, create a, a scholarship fund for future uh, members of the association that want to enter into the CR program. Uh, to, t- to tie in with the... With the interview, this, the, you know, today, uh, there's quite a bit of content on the program dealing with uh, the insurance industry. Uh, Peter is doing some uh, pre-convention workshops to, to deal with a lot of those issues, uh, helping restorers how to, you know, how to market better to the insurance industry. Uh, the end of day one, we have a special panel uh, that I was involved in organizing called um, uh, Closing the Gap, a discussion between restorers and insurers to better serve the common customer, the policyholder, a victim of disaster. Peter's on that panel. Uh, Harvey Cohen, well-known attorney, ex-guest uh, on uh, IAQ Radio, deals with standardized contracts and uh, the use of um, assignment of benefit clauses, proper contracts uh, in the insurance claim process uh, is going to be on that panel, uh, along with uh, you know several other viewpoints or perspectives from both the insurance and the restoration industry. Uh, um, uh, another really hot topic uh, is... Uh, that's been in uh, REA's news break over the last uh, several months are the issues that are involved with mortgage companies um, holding up insurance payments and holding up a draft for restoration contractors when the work is done. There's a special program there uh, highlighting and dealing with those issues. And, of course, there's uh, quite a few technical items on the program like we always have during our breakouts, the exhibition, uh, the Xactimate people will be doing an annual property report. Unfortunately, a gentleman was scheduled to do that last year, and there was a problem with his plane that got canceled, and he never came. Uh, we did upload uh, that report to the website, but uh, that'll be something I think which should be of interest to uh, a lot of the members and people that are in restoration. And I guess finally, uh, you know, some of the latest groundbreaking news is the uh, 
uh, MOU, the uh, Memorandum of Understanding that was recently released between the RAA and the Clean Trust, IICRC, and their chairman, Daryl Paulson, will be there to, uh, to update, you know, the RA members and some of the things going around that. So we certainly hope you all can join us. And uh, Mr. Z-Man, I will turn it over to you. Thanks for the time on behalf of RIA. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. Okay. Peter, let's get back to our, yes, let's get back to our interview. Okay. When I was uh, engaged I'm in the restoration field some time ago, I always preferred marketing to and working for general adjusters. What special tactics do you have for a restoration or remediation firm for dealing with GAs or general adjusters? Okay. Well, as I explained before, general adjusters are the high-end losses, and they travel a fair amount. They live on expense accounts, so they're not influenced by free lunches and uh, things like that. Because they travel on the road, uh, they're not that available for promo and entertainment. So, uh, and they are more focused on the professional side of the business on getting the job done and getting effective vendors in. So first of all, when you work with a GA, you've got to make sure that you're able to finance a job. Um, no point in talking to a guy that's handling a million dollar claim. If you're going to be knocking on his door after two weeks, uh, ask, uh, begging for money and particularly if he's an independent and he doesn't control that, it's going to be a problem and he's going to feel harassed. So uh, you got to make sure that uh, you're able to handle the big jobs. And then there are occasions where you'll be able to meet this guy locally, but if not, um, if you encounter one in the field because you've been called in by a property owner, that's an opportunity to start building a relationship with them um, and, and you go from there. You know, you mentioned uh, entertainment. Uh, you know, when I was in the business, entertainment used to be pretty heavy, you know, baseball games and football games and, you know, like a lot of lunches and a lot of dinners and, and things like that. Uh, is that still commonly done, you know, for remediators, consultants to, you know, kind of wine and dine adjusters, or is it frowned upon? Well, it's still out there, and uh, some regions of the country are more intense than others. Uh, I will tell you, uh, in all of my travels, and of course, I was based out of Atlanta, but in all of my travels and in my dealings with my brethren in the Independent Association of Adjusters, uh, Atlanta is, is one of the most competitive and intense towns for promo and entertainment. And um, some elements of the adjusting community uh, are described as having their hand out. It's, it's definitely frowned upon officially, and a lot of companies have, have policies against it. And But I have vendors tell me, well, yeah, I called on so-and-so at ABC Company, and he told me they have a policy against coming to lunch or taking ball game tickets. But then I went to the ball game, and I saw him sitting with my competitor. So it's very tricky. Uh, it does exist, and I, and I had a vendor not too long ago, a jewelry dealer in South Florida, and he was talking to me about possibly doing an education program for his salespeople, and he said, uh, in, the, in the middle of the conversation, he says, uh, of course, I know I have to pay off adjusters, and, and and I thought, I stopped in my tracks, and and I wanted to say, uh, any any adjuster that hits you up for cash, that that may have been a thing of the past. That doesn't happen anymore. And before I could get the shh out of on the word cash, he said, "Oh no, it does happen. We just lost an account because we wouldn't pay off the adjusters." So, and, and another vendor told me that even on a preferred vendor program, that he had to influence the adjuster, even though he was on the list. And so uh, anybody that tells you that all of that stuff that doesn't exist is definitely naive and that it doesn't matter, that's a naive approach. Um, you, you know, you have to be careful how you do promo and entertainment, and you have to be aware and conscientious to the uh, requirements of the employing company, uh, but it does happen, and, and it takes a fair amount of skill, and we do talk about that in some of my workshops. It always comes up. Peter, can you give us one tip on that area? I mean, I know I hear it all the time. That, you know, I want to get in with this adjuster, but I can't. You know, he he's working with my competition. I know they're doing this, doing that for him. Is there one tip you can give our, our listeners 
with respect to how to handle that or what the best way to go about it. I mean, you know, you want to work with people, you want to buy them a lunch, you want to buy them a dinner, whatever. What's a safe way of handling that kind of issue? Well, okay, it's very difficult to break in on a relationship that always already exists, especially if they're in bed and they're doing things that, that aren't necessarily approved by the industry or by the insurance company. Um, that's sort of a, a tight lock on that relationship. But you just, in, in that case, you just make yourself available and be a known quantity to that adjuster. You may meet that adjuster at the claims associations and have some dealings, and as long, in a subtle way, you let him know that you're out there, you're professional, and you're available to do work. When that other relationship hits a bump in the road or, or, or hits a train wreck, which, which is very likely, uh, then he may see you as someone that he trusts and knows because of the past dealings, even though you didn't get work from him. That's a good point. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention real quick, Cliff, is you've mentioned your books, and I want to make sure that I, I point listeners in the right direction. So maybe we could go down, or I'll tell you what, let's do it this way. If I've got a company that does disaster restoration, they're trying to market more to uh, the company-type adjusters and maybe a few independent adjusters, which of your books would you recommend, and how do people get them? Okay. <clears throat> the website has all of my books. The website is very simple, www.sshca.net. SS as in soft selling, HCA as in hardened claims adjusters, .net, sshca.net. Now, if you're in the restoration business, you want to get my Restoration Contractor's Guide to Insurance Repair, uh, which after this year I'll be changing that title to Insurance Repair Marketing, just to make it more clear, that book is over 300 pages and represents 30 years of my life in marketing to the insurance industry. It doesn't tell you how to hang drywall and drive a nail. It tells you how to work with the insurance industry, how to build relationships with adjusters. There is another book, which is entitled Soft Selling Hardened Claims Adjusters, which is designed for any vendor. It doesn't have to be a restoration contractor. There are a lot of other vendors that are definitely vested in the insurance claims industry. And, and then there's claims marketing tips. Now, I also have a free newsletter called Claims Marketing Tips, and if anyone is uh, interested in receiving that for free, uh, just shoot me an email, and I'm peter at sshca.net. Tell me you want to receive the free newsletter, and I'll be happy to send it to you. And um, otherwise, there's workshops, there's webinars coming up on April 30th, uh, for an hour of your time, and you can have it in your conference room and invite five or ten of your people at no extra charge uh, for a one-hour webinar that um, that fills you in on uh, on my my secrets and my methods and what have been successful for me and for many other contractors who have followed my material. All right, Peter, from from your experience, what common mistakes? do insurance repair contractors make in trying to market to insurance adjusters? Okay, well, <clears throat> don't ever bring anything to the office. Don't bring a gift to the office. Don't send baseball tickets. Don't send a lot of thank you cards. I, I've actually heard adjusters say that they, they feel paranoid when they receive a thank you card from some vendor or contractor or whatever that their claims manager is going to see it. And, I, and I'm, I can tell you this, that the atmosphere in the claims office is very attuned to that type of thing. So you just do not ever want to be, if you're an adjuster, you don't want to be seen as aligned with any particular vendor. So any vendor that, that forces that issue or, um, uh, you know, is pushing themselves on you is, is going to be excessive. At the PLRB, for example, the, the Property Loss Research Bureau, they have their annual powwow. you got 2,000 adjusters in there, and then you probably got 10,000 vendors in there. It's like a feeding frenzy, and the adjusters actually flip their badges over so you can't tell who's an adjuster, and they're color-coded. You know, they don't want you to see their color code because uh, they don't want to be hit on uh, or hustled at the convention. So adjusters... They don't like to be sold. They don't like a sales pitch. They're too cynical and pessimistic for that. They prefer to find you and recognize you for your value. So you just have to make yourself available and be where they are. 
and be a real person, be the best that you can be and bring out that to, uh, to begin a relationship on a real human being basis. That's a great point. Be where they are. I assume you mean physically be where they are. Is there also uh, maybe a tip you can give people for how to help them in ensuring that adjusters can find them when they need them? Is there maybe a web, uh, a tip on their website, uh, maybe a tip on you know optimizing the search, uh, making sure that they have the right uh, terms on their website so that when people do search for them, they find them, or maybe going to one of these, um, you know, lists like Angie's List or something like that. Can you give us a little tip on that one? Okay, an adjuster is never going to go to Angie's List. Uh, that's not going to happen. And they're not going to work too hard at trying to find you. You have to make it easy to find you. So, yes, if you have a website, you got to have a website pretty much. Your business card should have all your contact info and there have been times when I'm working on an estimate at 10 o'clock at night and I finish and I want to go ahead and send it to the contractor for his review, and he doesn't have an email on his business card. Now, how crazy is that? So you've got to have all that information on your card, make it easy to do business with you and contact you. Let me tell you what the number one vehicle for marketing is, is to offer education for adjusters, number one. And very close to number one. And by the way, that, that gives you an exclusive audience if you can put that together. And I do that for some people, too. Uh, you know, I can put on agents' uh, CEUs and adjuster CEUs for people. I'm doing one in North Carolina next month and Texas the month after that. But so education is number one. Very close to number one, but number two is when you encounter an adjuster that you don't know at the scene of a loss. Now, let's say you're called in by the property owner and there's an adjuster there, what better opportunity for you to use to endear yourself to that adjuster? And let me tell you how you do it. There's one thing that that adjuster has to know about you at the scene of a loss. And and understand this. If you're not the guy he called in, you're on the wrong side of the fence. He already views you suspect. Okay? You've got to get that adjuster aside and let him know and say, listen, you don't know me. You say it just like this. You don't know me, but I just want you to know that I loathe and detest insurance fraud. I realize that when people rip off insurance companies, we all suffer because we all pay premiums. That's what I want you to know. And fraud is not going to happen on my watch. You tell that to an adjuster, right away you start breaking down the defenses and the barriers. So education is the number one opportunity to meet adjusters. Number two, at the scene of a loss. Number three is attend their claims associations and be there in a relaxed environment and get to know them little by little. Don't expect to hit a grand slam the first night you go to a claims association meeting, but you're just going to have to be a part of it. Thank you. I, we re- I really appreciate you giving those tips, Peter. Yeah, that, but- was, that was really good. Um, Peter, how can a, you know the restoration contractors all – for the most part, perform similar services. You know, and they all say that we're the fastest. They all say that our pricing is competitive. How can an insurance repair contractor separate himself from the pack when dealing with insurance adjusters? Okay, this is a very valuable uh, question. And uh, here's the thing, and you're exactly right. From my viewpoint, Every vendor says they do good work. Every vendor says they have integrity, blah, blah, blah. Okay, if I'm a GA handling multimillion-dollar losses, don't even talk to me unless you can finance a multimillion-dollar loss and not get any money for a couple of months. Okay, don't even go there. Uh, You know, and um, all right, so number one. Number two. If I can relate to you on a personal level, and and this may be petty, but this is the real world. Uh, Let's say that I'm a 25-year-old young female, okay? And you're some old guy who's uh, 60 years old, and so you're three or four generations away from me and the way I think. Uh, Am I going to do business with you, or am I going to do business with a 25-year-old a uh, young man that comes to call on me and market his services or another 25-year-old woman. Um, Personality-wise, I'm probably going to go with who I'm comfortable with, my own, my own demographic, okay? And, and I know that it's impossible for you to have someone 
calling on people to match every single demographic out there. But do your best to do that. And if you find that most of the adjusters out there are in the 20 to 30, or let's say 25 to 35-year range in age, then you probably ought to have someone that mirrors that demographic calling on them and doing the marketing. You, you may think that's an impossible job. It can be done. And what I've done before is even take someone. Let's say I'm the main marketer in my business, and I'm going to call on somebody who's 25. I'm going to bring along a young person from my office with me on that call to help this prospect relate to us as a company because we've got a matching demographic. That is, To me, that is so important, and people underestimate how important that is. Okay. Well, that's... Peter, I, I think we could go on for a couple of hours, but we're really running out of time. Please hang on. We're going to go to what we call a roundup. We're going to kind of go around the horn and ask uh, each, everyone's going to ask another question, and then we'll kind of close out. Okay, here's the order for the roundup. We're going to go with Dieter first, then we're going to go with Pete, then we'll go with Joe, and, and then I'll close it out. So uh, without further ado, let's move over to Dieter. Good afternoon, Dieter. Well, uh, good afternoon. Well, I said it several times on this show. It's amazing. Every time I listen, I learn something, <laughs> which I guess is excellent. No, I think this is an eye-opener. And yeah, we all have kind of, some kind of insurance, whether it's life insurance or the car insurance, the house insurance, whatever it may be. <laughs> and I'm somewhat well-educated, and I don't read these seven or eight pages what I'm signing or what I'm agreeing to. And, uh, you yeah, know, fortunately and hopefully we never, ever need it, but I sleep better if I pay my premiums, which I did this morning, uh, for my car insurance. But um, I think uh, Peter uh, really pointed out a couple of things. There is more to it than just settle a claim. There are several ways of doing it, a lousy way and a good way, just like just about everything. Not every... MD is a great doctor, and not every guy who is a lawyer is a fantastic lawyer. And um, I, 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 I understand now that there is more to it than, hey, I have a loss over here, and let's, get, uh, let's take care of it, and let's get rid of it. There is a little bit more to it, and I guess there are better people out there or better companies out there who can handle a loss, and I say fairly. I don't want, you know, if, 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 if my house gets flooded I, and my house is worth $100,000 right now, when it's all said and done, it, it, it shouldn't be uh, $200,000 worth. And, uh, that, yeah, that is not fair. And uh, Peter pointed that out, too. You've got to be fair and you've got to be reasonable and you've got to be straightforward and say, here, this is what you pay and this is what you're getting. And I think even there, I think we overlook this when we pay our uh, insurance uh, premiums, which I did this morning. I didn't think about all of that, what I heard and learned about. So that's, this is a valuable uh, education that tells us about the problems that are around the corner should you ever need an adjuster if you ever have a claim or something like that. Okay, thanks, Dieter. Thank you, Dieter. Pete Consigli. Uh, I got just one quick comment and then a question from Peter. I, I can't believe that I forgot to give the website when I did the little RAA thing at halftime. And actually, RAA has a separate landing page, which we just created this year for the convention, so you don't have to go through the regular website. It's real easy to remember. It's just www.raaconvention.org. 
Uh, Peter, one of the things I'd like you to uh, comment on, and I don't think it was integrated in the interview with the questions, talk a little bit about code of ethics and the um, kind of the compatibility between different insurance adjusters working with different vendors. And to preface that, you know, the RIA has a consumer-based code of ethics. Uh, AIHA, the industrial hygienist, does, uh, along with the Clean Trust, IAQA, and other organizations. In in RIA, the certified restorer and the WLS designates have special codes. And I know that you've been a member for years of the NAIA, the National uh, Independent Adjusters. You did a program for RIA a few years ago where you talked about this. On that same program uh, was a gentleman who had uh, been the president of the uh, the Napier people, the National Independent Public Adjusters, he talked about their code. I think this is good for the listeners that we do talk about this. And and remember, you know, many of the people that, that, uh, you know, who aren't listening today, a lot more people probably come and download these podcasts. And hopefully, you know, you can add some insights to that. That, I think, uh, would be kind of a cherry on on the interview today. Okay, well, I think that the insurance industry should... Um, reinforce ethics a different way than what is currently done. Typically, when adjusters, and they are required for their licenses to get a certain amount of ethics uh, exposure in the course of a year, when adjusters go to an ethics class put on by lawyers, what the lawyers will tell them is what the courts decided was right or wrong. And as you know, something could be immoral, but it could be legal. And um, somebody, something could be unethical, but until the court decides that it was improper, you can continue doing it. And that's, that's kind of the way the instruction in ethics is done by the lawyers that, that, that cater to the insurance industry. Uh, I do a different ethics program, and I think that most organizations approach it differently, and they talk about what it means to have... Uh, an ethical code and to abide by it and who the beneficiaries are from it. And that's just not happening in the insurance industry as a rule, in my opinion. All right. Peter, my turn, Cliff? Yep, Joe. Thank you. Peter, first I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been very interesting. I wasn't sure, you know, how this would go, and I'm really happy we did it the way we did it and that we brought you in. You mentioned... The number one way of you know kind of getting your name out with the adjusters and and I, I love it because it was education and providing educational seminars I assume uh, since I do educational seminars I was very pleased to hear that but I, my my follow up to that is what are the most um, desired topics and length and then what type of speaker should they invite? I mean, do you want to have a speaker from within your office? Do you want to bring in a special guest speaker? What's the best topics, and how long of a program? Okay, well, the length of the program can vary, but an hour segmented over a a period of weeks, you know, one hour one week, another hour following week is good because that lets them get in and out. If you can feed them a little lunch, let's say you do a 10.30 to 11.30 and then offer them a sandwich or something, uh, they leave uh, happy. And um, ethics is always a good topic if it's approved by the state for continuing ed ethical credits because that, that is more likely to bring adjusters in. Now, the topic should be whatever your specialty is. So if you specialize in mold remediation, you should be talking about mold remediation. Now, you can do it yourself. You can bring in a speaker to do it, but the speaker should should defer to you. In other words, you should get the glory for this education opportunity. And uh, so so you don't you wouldn't want to necessarily bring in a speaker that uh, detracts from the main objective of the event, which was to give you exposure and publicity. Great. Thanks again for joining us, Peter. I know Cliff's going to ask the final question here, and uh, I just wanted to make sure I said thank you from from my own uh, perspective here because I I really enjoyed it. Well, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Okay. Well, Peter, we always like to give our guests the last word. Is there a final comment that you'd like to make or anything else that you'd like to add? Uh... Well, I'll say this, that we're talking about marketing to adjusters 
And what I talk about is marketing in the real world. There are people that will come and talk to you about sales and marketing to adjusters, and they don't admit uh, what really goes on at street level. They, they want to talk about customer policyholder retention and treating the customer well and so on. Well, most adjusters aren't oriented that way. If you could be a fly on the wall in a break room of any adjusting office, they would be talking not about policyholder retention and being good to customers. They'd be talking about how somebody tried to get one over on them or somebody had tried to demand or be fraudulent in the claim. So my method of, of marketing is real-world marketing, the nitty-gritty of what's really happening out there at street level, and, uh, and that's what I'm all about. I, again, I thank you for inviting me to this program. Excellent. No, no problem. What, what I'd like you to do is uh, repeat your website again for our listeners. All right. The website is sshca.net. Stands for soft selling hardened claims adjusters, but you can just use the letters sshca.net, and in it you will see everything uh, I have to offer from books to webinars to workshops and even coaching. Okay. All right. Before we leave, we want to thank today's guest, Peter Crosa, also Pete Consigli, my co host, Radio Joe Hughes, our engineer, Valerie Bender, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Yo, yo, everybody want to try to box me in, suffocating every time it locks me in, painting their own pictures and they crop me in, but I will remain where the top begins, because I am not a word, I am not a line, I am not a girl that could ever be defined, I am not fly. Levitation. I represent an entire generation. I hear the criticism loud and clear. That is how I know that the time is near. See, we become alive in a time of fear. And I ain't got time to fear. Cry my eyes out for days upon days. Such a heavy burden placed upon me. But when you go hard, your nays become yays. Yankee Stadium with Jays and Kanye. has been another IAQ Radio production. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.